everybody. This is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. Welcome back. I've been on the road for a couple of weeks. I think I actually have an airline trip six of the next seven weeks. So I'm trying to I'm trying to keep up with ye old podcast, but a lot of a lot of FaceTime uh, with a lot of people and a lot of sharing of the Strong Towns message. So hopefully I'll be coming to a place near you and we can chat in person. But there's a lot of you on the other end of this now. So I'm gonna do the best that I can to to keep up with things. I did start the year with a whole bunch of podcasts scheduled and amazingly, like four of them. <laughs> they all got canceled. <laughs> so I'm trying. I really am. Today, you are going to hear the argument from the Minnesota Court of Appeals. Uh, you're going to hear two attorneys going back and forth. I, I was there in the audience. I, I was not part of the arguments. I was not even allowed to sit up front. I had to sit in the audience with everybody else. Uh, this is an appeal of the ruling of the Board of Engineering Licensure in the state of Minnesota. If you appeal those, those go to the Court of Appeals. The court uh, agreed to hear our case. There were three justices there. The attorney for Strong Towns uh, presents an argument. There's an attorney with the Attorney General's Office in the state of Minnesota representing the board, uh, makes a counter argument. There have been lots of filings uh, put in this. Our attorney closes things out. You'll hear the justices interrupt, ask a lot of questions. They're very interesting questions. But this is a lot of legal talk, right? We are now in the legal part of this. And a couple of things to note. First, uh, you'll hear them talk just briefly uh, about two-thirds of the way through about precedent. And everyone acknowledging that the decision on this case will make a precedent because what this really is, from a legal standpoint, uh, from a very narrow legal standpoint, is about the, the limits of state power. Does the state have the authority to do what they did? Do they have the authority, in this case, to regulate the speech of someone who has a license but is not practicing, someone who is not engaged in the practice of engineering? Do they have the capacity to do that? And so you're going to hear a lot of like nuanced legal arguments. The other thing you're going to hear, and this is, you know, driven me crazy since day one, is this like supposition that I have somehow lied, deceived the public, done, you know, horrible things. And at, at this point in, in the legal process, we're not adjudicating that. That is not being adjudicated. That is for the licensing board to make a determination on. And we don't get to appeal that. The only thing we get to appeal is whether uh, they had the authority to do this or not. This makes for, how do I say this? Very frustrating listening for me personally. When this hearing was over, I went out in my car and I recorded a podcast for all of you reacting to this. Uh, that podcast is deleted and will never see the light of day. It was more therapy for me than anything else on a personal level. This is really, really painful to go through. I don't want me to be the focus here because I'm not the focus. Although, you know, this, this complaint is about me and I am in a sense the vehicle to have this argument, but it's very painful because I have not lied. I have not deceived anyone. I have not. Uh, done anything that should draw the board's attention, let alone anybody else's, except stand up and speak out for reform. And of course, that is ultimately why we are here. You know, before we get on to the, uh, the arguments, I just want to go back and reinforce that notion of why we're here. 
you know, we are, we are here uh, listening to this. We're, we're having to go through this. We're having to hire attorneys and be at the court of appeals and potentially go to, you know, the Minnesota Supreme court and then into the federal courts. We, we, we are doing this because we are sticking up for people who are pushing for reform, reform of the engineering profession, reform of the way we approach infrastructure and infrastructure projects. Um, we have been on the leading edge of this for a long time. And on multiple occasions now, engineers who don't like our message have tried to abuse the complaint process to stifle conversation. Uh, essentially, if you speak up, if you make yourself a target and you have a license, if you have PE behind your name, if you're licensed by the state, we are going to pursue you. We are going to use that state licensing board, even though, you know, in my case, you're not practicing, you're not doing anything, anything that they regulate. You're not doing any activity that requires a license, any activity that oversees someone with a license or works in an area that was licensed. You are literally writing, giving talks, uh, doing podcasts. We're going to come after you with the power of the state. Um, the first time this was done to me, the board dismissed the complaint, um, but they dismissed it with, you know, a notice that they would come after me if, if, if things change, if conditions warrant, uh, essentially they were keeping an eye on me. In the second case, now they chose to issue an, an unprecedented order, really. When you look back at the orders that the board has given, they are not censuring people who have you know, spent many, many years actually practicing engineering without a license. They are not uh, going to any extent that they did with me. They are trying to make an example out of me because they're trying to stifle people who would stand up. They're trying to send a signal to all engineers that if you speak up for reform, if you speak up, if you make yourself known, if you make yourself a target by standing out within this profession, uh, we are going to use this process to target you. For those of you new to this, I, I would recommend you go to the website, strongtowns.org forward slash support reform. And you are going to get all the old podcasts, all the old articles, and you are going to get every legal filing that we have made since this first came to our attention in, I think, July of 2020. So we're two and a half years into this now. Essentially, the very narrow argument that has been made, the accusation that has been made against me is that I was practicing as an engineer without a license. I have been licensed since 2000. In 2018, my license lapsed. I did not renew it. Uh, that was unintentional. I didn't know. And then when it came to my attention, I renewed. And that renewal was accepted because I, of course, am qualified to be a licensed engineer. During the time when my license was lapsed, I did not practice. I did not undertake any engineering work. I did not seek any engineering work. I did not accept any solicitations for engineering work. If I even received any, I don't recall receiving any. I certainly did not write up any plans, do any specifications, oversee anyone else, work on any team that did engineering work. I didn't do anything even remotely uh, regulated by the state of Minnesota, yet the licensing board of the state of Minnesota found that I had not only practiced engineering, but I, I had practiced it in a way that was deceptive to the public, that I misrepresented myself to the public, that I lied to the board when I said I had not practiced engineering. 
And they decided to censure me, to reprimand me, and to fine me for this. This has been a long drawn out process. And I don't know if we're near the end or not. The justices had, as you'll see, some very interesting questions. At one point, they drilled down into the attorney general's argument. And the attorney general is essentially arguing anyone who represents themselves as an engineer in any place where someone would believe that they could perform engineering services, even if they're not doing it, even if they're not practicing, if someone believes they could perform engineering services, they are practicing engineering. That's the argument that they're making. It's a legal argument, right? And they drill down to it and the justice says, well, what if someone on their, on their mother's deathbed and their mother always wanted them to be an engineer says, you know, son, I always wanted you to be an engineer. And they say, well, mom, I, I am a licensed engineer. I'm a professional engineer. Would that person be subject to state sanction? And the answer was yes. So we are, in a sense, setting some precedent here. And while I didn't want to be in this place, our board did not want to be in this place. We, we wanted to amicably resolve this with the board. I had actually agreed to pay a fine. I had agreed to accept that from the board. What I didn't agree to is I would not say that I had lied. I would not say that I had misled the public. I would not say that I had intentionally deceived the board or done anything like that. I would not say that I committed fraud. That was one of the things they wanted me to acknowledge and to admit to state in writing. I would not do anything, these things. And so they unilaterally acted. We are now in the legal part, right? So we're debating the limits of their power. They have the authority to do what they did. Now we're debating whether, let me put it this way. They had the ability to do what they did. Now we are debating whether they actually have the authority. The sad part of this is that the licensing board serves a valuable function in society. Uh, the licensing board should oversee people who are practicing engineering. They should take that very seriously. They should do that uh, with all earnestness. What they have chosen to do in this case instead is to get sidetracked into a vendetta against a reformer as a way to signal to other people who would join us or other people who would speak up and say, this system is broken, it needs to change, that they do so at their own professional risk. I wanna thank everybody in this audience and, and everybody in the Strong Towns movement who has stepped up to support this effort. This is a, an important effort to protect reformers and to protect professionals who should be speaking up, who we need to speak up and come forward. This is a really important way to defend them and separate their speech and their advocacy from the work that they do and I just want to thank everybody who has donated to help make that possible. We've had a couple different rounds of requesting money to help pay legal fees. Uh, we will probably be having another one of those. This legal process is very expensive. It takes a lot of time and a lot of energy to write out all of these briefs and, and show up at the Court of Appeals. And, and it's only getting more detailed as we go. Thank you. You have taken the that burden off of us and allowed, you know, as much of a distraction as this is, and it's a distraction, I mean, part of why this has been done is to, you know, get us off track and, and get us distracted. As much of a distraction as this is, it has not been a fundraising distraction. It has not taken from other things that we've done, and it has not cost us time and energy trying to find the resources to continue this fight. Thank you to the people out there who have backed us 
and supported us and, and been there for us when we needed that. Thanks everybody. Take care. I was going to say enjoy, but <laughs> bear through it. It is very fascinating. Uh, and if it wasn't me, I might be even more fascinated by it, but take care. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. We'll, we'll be back again soon. Bye-bye everybody. Our third oral argument of the day, which is in the matter of the professional engineer license of Charles Mayron. Um, counsel, each of you will have 15 minutes to present your argument with an additional five minutes to Relators Council if you choose to use that time for rebuttal. Please state your name as you commence each leg of your argument because we do keep an audio recording of the proceedings. And this way we can, the public can keep track of who's attached to, to which argument. Um, the timing restrictions are indicated in the middle podium. There's a light. There's also a clock. The green light indicates you've got time available. Yellow light indicates you're within five minutes of your you're um, concluding, and the red light. by the time the red light comes on, you should have stopped. You'll note there are three different lecterns. You can choose which of the two closest to you to use. If you're concerned for health reasons um, and prefer to use the microphone closest to your, your desk, you certainly may. Otherwise, you're free to use the middle podium. Entirely up to you. With that, counsel for appellant, whenever you are ready to proceed, or counsel for the relator, um, whenever you're ready to proceed, you may. Hey, please the court. My name is William Mormon, and I represent the relator, Charles Marone. I wanted to start my argument out this morning by uh, addressing three facts that are not in dispute. Fact number one is the state does not dispute that my client, Charles Marone, hasn't worked as a professional engineer since 2012. Two, the state fully admits that when Mr. Marone referred to himself as a professional engineer during the period he was unlicensed, it was while he was engaged in political advocacy, and actually it's political advocacy that is damaging to the, the business interests of engineers. And number three, none of the board's allegations in the case involve Mr. Marone practicing as an engineer. In other words, there's no allegations here that Mr. Marone was involved in building a bridge that was gonna collapse or endanger the that's not what's going on in this case. The appeal here today is from a decision by the uh, Minnesota Board of Professional Engineers to sanction Mr. Marone because he referred to himself as a professional engineer during a two-year period where he forgot, Mr. Marone forgot to renew his two-year license as a professional engineer from 2018 to 2020. MnSTAT section 326.02 subdivision 3B prohibits anyone in the state from identifying themselves as a professional engineer unless they have a professional engineering license. That's what the statute says. So, for instance, if one of you judges went home tonight and said to your spouse, who you're living with, I'm a professional engineer, according to the state, you'd be violating the statute because the statute is that kind of bold, if you will. This case got started because, as I said earlier, Mr. Marone's not practicing. Now, that would be... What's that? Even though you said it would be you know, the state's position, and that's a bold look at the statute, that would be a plain reading application of the statute, though, also, correct? Yep. That would be. Yeah. That it doesn't, there's no qualification in the statute about that. With the one caveat, when you look at, um, I think it's 326.01, which describes the purpose of the statute and the like, it says the purpose is to protect the public, basically, from engineers doing bad engineering projects, which we would argue provides interpretive uh, support for our position in this case regarding that provision. 
So Mr. Marone quit practicing as a professional engineer in 2012 to start a nonprofit called Strong Towns that he's an employee of. Strong Towns' purpose is basically to advocate against massive public engineering projects. So Mr. Marone doesn't have a lot of friends in the professional engineering world because his organization has been successful in convincing state, county, and municipal governments not to go forward with massive public works projects that would adhere to the economic benefit of engineers around the country. And in fact, that's how this case got started because a engineer in South Dakota by the name of David Dixon filed a complaint with the Minnesota Board of Professional Engineers that Mr. Marone had the audacity at these public advocacy conferences he was at to say he was a professional engineer during the time he was unlicensed. And that's what Mr. Dixon's complaint was about. We also noted in our facts when the board was investigating this matter through its complaint committee, there was a meeting that Mr. Marone had with his prior counsel where the board members were saying, well, we're really disturbed about this. You're, you're actually talking about being a professional engineer at these public advocacy conferences. I will tell the court that, I think the state said this in their papers, we commenced a federal, district, uh, federal court action before the state filed this case to get a pre-enforcement ruling that the state's interpretation of the statute violates the First Amendment, as we've laid out in our papers here. Um, the uh, federal district court dismissed that case because the state subsequently commenced this disciplinary proceeding, and under the anti-injunction doctrine and the younger doctrine, the federal court had to stay its hands, so the case was dismissed without prejudice. I'll tell the court that the statements that were made by these complaint committee board members would give rise to a First Amendment retaliation claim. And to, to complain that Mr. Marone was describing himself as a professional engineer while engaged in political speech, at a minimum, I think, gives rise to a claim, and I think a successful claim. The last thing I want to... Could a person under protection of the First Amendment misrepresent himself as a, a police officer? Um, and are the, could the person be charged with the crime of impersonating a police officer by falsely representing himself as a police officer during a political event? No. Is that a First Amendment? Why isn't that protected under the First Amendment, but this would be? That, that, get, that gets right to Alvarez. At the end of our brief, we went through, because they're claiming that Mr. Marone lied in his reinstatement application. The U.S. Supreme Court in the Alvarez case, I think it was decided about eight years ago, Prior to the Alvarez case, it was unknown whether First Amendment free speech protection extends to just outright lying. And the, what the Alvarez case involved was a political candidate who was running for office saying he won the Congressional Medal of Honor. And the, uh, Congress had passed a statute called the Stolen Valor Act saying you can't, you can't go and lie about winning the Congressional Medal of Honor. And the U.S. Supreme Court said, nope, First Amendment applies, First Amendment free speech guarantee applies to lying. And in that case, you, you have to, the state still, or the government would still have to show it had a compelling interest to uh, enforce in those circumstances this, the fact that this gentleman was lying about his, about having received the Congressional Medal of Honor. 
One of the things the Supreme Court said in that case is they, uh, it was an opinion by Justice Kennedy, and he laid out alternatives that the government could do. One of the things Kennedy said is, look, this is the age of the internet. You can solve this really easily. Why doesn't the Defense Department put on its website who's won the Congressional Medal of Honor? And then if somebody's lying about it, people can go on the internet and they can figure that out. Right, but unlike a Congressional Medal of Honor, I mean, a, a law enforcement license and an engineer's license, I think, are, are, are separate, aren't they? I mean, I thought you were acknowledging that a person could not misrepresent himself, could not rely upon the First Amendment to assert as protected speech misrepresentation of, of licensure as a peace officer. Yes, so I... Um, and if so, so how, so, how so would you... So let me get to that example. Okay. My first kind of off-the-cuff response to come back at you was, depends on the police officer saying it. If he's saying it on a date to impress the person he wants he's on the date with, no, I don't think that can be enforced because there's no interest there. If the police officer is saying that at a pol- or the person, right, because it's false, right? If the person's saying that at a, at a political event, the answer is no. I mean, let's, let's just think about it. I mean, the worst thing would be, I, I would think, it'd be somebody representing their police officer when they're running for public office. I don't see how that's distinguishable from the Stolen Valor Act. So one quote I wanted to give you. Can, I, I, think- can I just ask you, um, what about a situation where political speech and commercial speech are overlapping? Which I think is kind of what the board is arguing here, um, maybe indirectly, that, that this is commercial speech, even if it may have had a political component. But, but just, just go with me for, for the purpose of uh, this argument. What if, what if it has overlapping purposes? What sort of First Amendment protection is there? The political speech will override the commercial speech. I will tell you that I was shocked when I got the commercial speech argument from the state. I do a lot of First Amendment free speech work. I was, like, stunned. Commercial speech is when you're proposing a commercial transaction. There's no commercial transaction here that Mr. Marone was proposing with anyone. And I actually would ask your honor, just sitting here, I can't think of a situation where those two things would intertwine. Unless you're going to go to the point of arguing that a political candidate falsely, rep- let's say they falsely represented they were a police officer, right? And you're saying it's, it's commercial speech because if they won the election, they're going to draw a salary from being a congressman. That doesn't fly. That's not commercial speech. That's, commercial speech is limited to speech in the commercial arena. I'm not even sure you could, you could say we got commercial speech here with Mr. Marone because he's, first of all, it's not that Mr. Marone was doing this self for himself individually, like you know he owned his own business. He works for for Strong Towns. It's a nonprofit. It has eighteen employees. But Mr. Mormon, yes, sorry, can you hear me? Okay. Yes. Um, he put the um, information that he was a professional engineer on flyers, um, on a book jacket, on various things that he wanted people to purchase or wanted people to attend. And so explain how that isn't commercial speech. Because he was putting that on it. 
the commercial speech doctrine, you have to be proposing a transaction. You have to be proposing a transaction. The book is not proposing a transaction. I fortunately was able to locate a federal court decision, oddly enough, out of the Minnesota District Court here, the Dreyer case, where um, some former uh, professional football players were suing the NFL over uh, NFL film productions of, you know, NFL films will do things of, you know, Super Bowl 19 or, you know, the greatest running backs or whatever. And these people sued saying you're losing, using our likeness in the films. And it was Justice Paul, or Judge Paul Magnuson in his decision, the league came back and said, no, there's First Amendment implications here. And um, uh, Judge Magnuson bought the argument and he went through an analysis of the commercial speech factors and said, you know, first of all, it has to be an advertising. And he said the product itself is not advertising. So that's kind of what you're, you're arguing here where he's saying in a book, that's it's a book, it's not an advertisement. It also then has, the use of the speech has to refer to the product that's, uh, that's being proposed for the transaction. Mr. Marone is not doing that because the book is the book. It's the same thing. He wants people to buy the book, though, doesn't he? <laughs> that gets to the third argument that J Judge Magnuson laid out, which is the economic motivation. Judge Magnuson just said everybody who writes a book wants to sell it. That does not mean it's economic but motivation. doesn't the use of PE or identifying himself as a professional engineer make it more likely that people will want to buy the book based on that fact alone? Isn't that why he put it on there? He put it, no, he didn't put it on there, I think, to get him to buy the book. I think he put it on there to bolster his credentials, to bolster his political argument, that when he's making the argument that uh, governments are wasting funds on public engineering projects, you can trust what I'm saying, because I'm, 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 a, I'm a trained engineer, which is actually accurate. So, so why, we're not, we're so not, why we're, not just say engineer instead of professional engineer? I think because they, you know, that's what he had done his whole life, is referred to himself as a professional engineer. And, you know, he wasn't aware that his license had lapsed when this happened. So, so are you saying that his, un, his lack of uh, awareness that the license had lapsed is an excuse for continuing to use the title? Um, no, my main argument is that the state doesn't have an interest in policing his use of using the term professional engineer in the contents of political speech. That, uh, you know, I haven't really gotten into that legal argument, but one is... Um, you know, my first argument was a matter of statutory interpretation under the Weatherston case, where the Minnesota Supreme Court has interpreted this specific statute, not dealing with not dealing with the title of professional engineers, but the actual statute in 1960, and they said that it, this should not be interpreted by its literal meaning, but consistent with its purpose, which is to regulate professional engineers when they're practicing engineering. And my second legal argument is if the court doesn't do that, then we've got a huge First Amendment problem because then the state has to establish a compelling interest that they have a compelling interest to prohibit Mr. Marone from describing himself as a professional engineer when he's engaged in political advocacy. And I don't see how they can possibly make that argument as 
the court indicated. They're, they're trying to get around it with commercial speech, but the problem is they still have to establish a substantial interest in regulating commercial speech. And I don't see any interest that they would have in regulating this speech other than they want to stop Mr. Marone from speaking. My time is up. Thank you. Thank you. You will have an additional five minutes for rebuttal. Counsel for Respondent. May it please the court. My name is Assistant Attorney General Alan Cook Barr, here today on behalf of the Respondent Minnesota Board of Architecture, Engineering, Land Surveying, Landscape Architecture, Geoscience, and Interior Design. The court should affirm in this case because Relator Charles Marone has no First Amendment right to lie about his license status and no First Amendment right to give false information on license renewal applications. The board disciplined Mr. Marone because he held himself out as a professional engineer online, in presentations, and in print when he was not, in fact, a licensed professional engineer, and then he denied doing so on his license renewal applications. Mr. Marone admits to the conduct in question, but argues he had a First Amendment right to engage in it. He doesn't because there are three reasons why his false claims of licensure are not protected by the First Amendment. First, false licensure claims are not protected. Second, false commercial speech is not protected. And third, false statements for material gain are not protected. Any one of those three theories would justify discipline in this case. It's so going counsel, to be- if you could start with the question that uh, Judge Gaitis asked, which is when you have a situation where arguably the speech is both potentially political in some aspects and commercial in other aspects. Um, how, how do you propose we address that? How, how are we supposed to decide what to apply? You follow Fox, Your Honor, the Tupperware case out of New York where the uh, individuals were engaging in Tupperware sales in dorm rooms. That case, um, the court held that there was no law of man or nature that prohibited people from engaging in the protected speech without engaging in the unprotected speech or vice versa. So if you can split them up, then the court has to do so under Fox, and the state can take action on the unprotected speech. In this case, nothing prevented Mr. Marone from engaging in his political advocacy without first identifying himself as a professional engineer. He could have said, I'm Charles Marone, and I think that cities should spend more money fixing potholes and less on, on exorbitant bus projects or, or whatever he, he wants to critique. Um, he did not need to say he was a professional engineer before engaging in, in um, the protected speech. And so because the court can parse that out under Fox, um, it has to. Isn't the apparent intent of the statute to protect the public from uh, individuals who are not properly licensed as professional engineers from engaging individuals to do the work? Yes, I think that's, I think that's right, Your Honor. Um, Isn't this sort of an overbroad application of the statute then? No, so, and, and get into this sort of in, in our history of licensing statutes. It's not enough. The state's interest isn't just saying, okay, once you've done work you shouldn't have done, we're going to go after you. We want to stop the work from being done in the first place. Not just work from being done. Um, so let's, let's say it goes further, soliciting work. There's no indication that the speech involved here it was soliciting work as a 
as a professional engineer, was there? Specific projects, no. However, the the speech on its own, if if you just said so Charles Marone, professional engineer, which is, is effectively the speech here, that would lead the public to believe that they could hire Mr. Marone to perform professional engineering work. If you look back at this at the statutes that predate the Constitution, those and at the time it was medical practice. That was really the first trade that was regulated in the United States. Those statutes didn't just say you can't do medical work. They didn't just say you can't solicit medical work. They went further and said you cannot even hold yourself out as being capable of doing medical work unless you have the license from New York City, the license from New Jersey, the qualification from Connecticut. And and this is then an outgrowth of that just in professional engineering rather than in the medical field. This gets to the first reason why discipline is consistent with the First Amendment. There's a long and historical tradition of states being able to regulate professional trades and licensing claims. In Alvarez, the Supreme Court recognized that strict scrutiny was not required if there was a a tradition of the state regulating speech in question, and there is here. Even before the Constitution was adopted, states were regulating professional trades and prohibiting people from using titles, using qualifications given by the state, unless people actually had those qualifications. Does the state acknowledge that there are there would be some circumstances in which application of this statute would be unconstitutional under the First Amendment? I, yes, I I think. Th- B1 just says you can't use the phrase professional engineer. Right. So I'm, I'm using that phrase right now. Right. And, and certainly I don't think that, that it would, the board does not think that our discussion now is, is in violation well, of the court security will be waiting yeah. for you. <laughs> um, no, I, I think the statute has to be read in light of B2 and B3. Those two both, both say you have to make the statement to lead, lead the public to believe you are, in fact, a professional engineer. So it sounds like you're agreeing that the, the statute does implicate uh, protected speech. Yes, it, it, it's a content-based restriction. However, it does not implicate the First Amendment in this case because of the tradition of licensure laws that predates the Constitution, and that was not changed when the Constitution was adopted. If you look at those laws that were pre-Constitution, they continued to be enforced after the Constitution was adopted. It wasn't until the 1820s when there was started to be some deregulation, but that wasn't due to constitutional litigation. I've searched, I have not found any cases challenging licensure laws pre-Alvarez. The only two that I'm aware of post-Alvarez are um, Jarlstrom and Seraphine, which I'll get to in, in a couple minutes here. Um, but the history of, of licensure laws indicates an unbroken tradition from pre-First Amendment through the adoption of the Constitution, through modern times of states being able to prohibit individuals from holding themselves out as having a professional qualification when they did not, do not, in fact, have that qualification. Could we decide this appeal solely on the um uh, false license application basis and not get at the other issues, or do we need to get it all? I believe you could resolve it solely on the f- on the false license application piece. 
So the, the, the board imposed a $1,500 civil penalty and censured and reprimanded him. Um, even if, if the court doesn't reach the um, holding out piece, those violations alone would be sufficient for a censured reprimand and $1,500 civil penalty. So no, the court does not, strictly speaking, need to reach both issues. Either would be sufficient. Um, do want to briefly address uh, Seraphine and Jarlstrom before going on to the other two, two um, pieces. So with respect to Seraphine being post-Alvarez and, and throwing into doubt, um, or at least according to relators, throwing into doubt whether or not the state can regulate professional titles, Seraphine was solely a commercial speech case. Um, that in that case, the, the state didn't raise the issue or, or look at any of, of the history of past of past practice of license regulation. Similarly, in Jarlstrom, that wasn't um, really a case about falsehoods. In Jarlstrom, it was a case about a statute being overbroad. Oregon prohibited the use of the term engineer, period. It covered train engineers. It covered civil engineers. It covered a wide variety of things that weren't subject to licensure. Um, here, professional engineers, we lay out in our brief, is a recognized term in the industry as someone with a license from the state to do professional engineering. The second alternative reason for, for this, um, for why Mr. Rowan's false statements of license aren't protected, is the commercial speech doctrine. Um, it is clear that false or misleading commercial speech has no First Amendment value and may be prohibited. Multiple circuits, multiple states, as we said in a brief, have applied the commercial speech doctrine to hold that the use of professional title constitutes commercial speech and can be prohibited. Mr. Marone argues that it has to propose a transaction. While that is a relevant consideration, that is not the test. If you look at Central Hudson, there was no transaction proposed. If you look at Bolger, there was no transaction proposed. If you look at Friedman, there was no concrete transaction proposed. At best, Friedman stands for the proposition, which, which we agree with, that the use of the title alone can come to be an offer for goods or services. There was, I, I don't remember the company, I will say Sunglasses Hut, because it, it was some sort of eyeglass company. And that name alone suggested that you could go there and you could buy eyeglasses, you could get visual services. Similarly, in this case, Mr. Marone's use of the title professional engineer alone suggests that you can go to Mr. Marone and you can get professional engineering services. Now, Mr. Marone has argued throughout this case that if someone actually went to him and tried to get professional engineering services done, he doesn't do them anymore. And while that may be the case, members of the public going to him wouldn't know that until they reached out to him. He is still holding out as a professional engineer by the use of the title, even if he ultimately wouldn't perform the services if someone tried to hire them. That's important because the state's interest, as we've discussed, is not just stopping people once they contract from doing professional engineering services. It's stopping the potential from contracts happening in the first place. So it's just so that I'm clear, your position is that it becomes commercial speech just by virtue of saying, I'm a professional engineer. 
Yes, I, I think unless it's clear you're you're in a theater play or you're on, you know, unless it's apparent it's false, so that the public wouldn't actually believe you're a professional engineer. Yes. What if you're on a date? If you're on a date, yeah, I I think that that would still be yes. You're, you're leading a member to the public to believe it. Now that that's not what happened here, certainly, Otter. Here, I'm just you trying ha- to get an understanding of the extent to which you're. So, if I understand your acknowledgement earlier that the First Amendment is implicated, I gather then it's only in the circumstances under a paragraph A where the, you use the term, but you're not referring to yourself. That, yes. So in, in, even in private conversation... With- in private conversations, if you lead a member of the public to believe you're a professional engineer, it's the board's position that would violate the statute. The... the dis- the, the line the board is drawing is... is and just uh, simply because that member of the public might mistakenly think they can retain your services. Exactly. Exactly. If, if I make the statement, but it's, it's the member of the public wouldn't think they could hire me, then it's a different issue. But here... But you're saying it doesn't even matter whether the public could hire you. I mean, what if Fred is sitting by his mother on her deathbed? She's always wanted Fred to be an engineer. Fred, it's never been an engineer, but he wants to impress. He wants mom to believe, you know. This is my last conversation with mom. She's about to go out. She's on her deathbed. Mom, I did it. I'm a professional engineer. Your view is that's a problem under the statute. You can enforce this provision against that individual. Yes, I, I, I think you could. I, I will say it. I don't see the board doing so, um, but in, in terms of exercising discretion, not. But no, I think. But no First Amendment but, protection at all. No, no. You you've held out to to Miss Mrs. Fred, and and she has said, and she now believes that that her son is a professional engineer when he isn't, and it's clear under the history of licensure enforcement laws that is a permissible imposition of discipline under the First Amendment. Council, you have uh, not very much time left here. It's just about a minute. Um, in your brief, you. Uh, disagree with your opposing counsel that the Dick Weatherston case is actually a case that's on point. If that's true, then are there any cases on point here in Minnesota? And if there are not, then is this a decision that ultimately should be made precedential? Yes, sir. I, th- I think this decision should be made precedential. I, outside of Dick Weatherston, I'm not aware of any case in Minnesota interpreting 326 um, at all, um, certainly not not in the time that I've represented this board has, has there been any. And so if that's the case, then do you have a, a proposed syllabus point for us to consider? Certainly. So with respect to the statutory piece, it would be that uh, a person violates 326.02 when the individual holds themselves out in a manner that leads a member of the public to believe they are a professional engineer. With respect to the First Amendment piece, it would be that individuals have no First Amendment right to falsely represent their um, credentials to the public as a licensee when they are not licensed. Thank you. As to the court, affirm the board's order. Thank you. Thank you. Counsel for Relator, you have five minutes of rebuttal time. Well, that was interesting. From my perspective, my case just got a lot better. And and if you could, just for the record, again, restate your name. I'm sorry. I'm William Mormon representing Relator uh, Charles Marone. Thank you. So Mr. Barr admitted that the statute, the plain meaning, doesn't really apply, that there's a line to be drawn. 
what he really didn't get at, well, kind of got at it, but really doesn't get at is where do you draw that line? Well, I think he said the line that, that the plain meaning applies. Oh, I see, except for provision, the first provision. He acknowledged that. You are correct. Yeah, yeah, I wrote that down. It wouldn't be a violation all the time. Well, where do you draw the line? Where I recommend you draw the line is when someone's engaged in providing engineering services or offering to provide engineering services. That's where the line gets drawn. I want to quote for you from Weatherston again. What about, I'm just going to interrupt you. What about when, um, as in this case, offering opinions about engineering? I mean, that seems a little, that seems a little closer of a call than the situation, um, you know, where you have a professional actor making that utterance or in the case of Jadrasa's I get what you're saying. Hypothetical, yeah. The problem is you're not engaged in engineering. So you're offering opinions on engineering in conjunction with political speech. The political speech is going to override whatever concerns you have about engineering in that, in that circumstance because you run into this huge problem that the state is going to use this provision as a stalking horse to squelch my client from engaging in political advocacy, which is against the economic interests of professional engineers. That's the problem with that. So your question also gets to the, to the second point, which is the state says that they have an interest, actually, in having the public not being deceived about whether somebody's a professional engineer, even though they're not going to hire the person as a professional engineer. That's absurd. They do not have an interest in that. They don't have a compelling one. They don't have a substantial one. They don't even have a legitimate one. In fact, I was, I was going to read Weatherston, but I'll jump ahead to the Lowe versus SEC case where the Supreme Court was adhering to the professional speech doctrine before NIFLA. This is in Justice White's opinion. He said, where the personal nexus between the professional and the client does not exist, and a speaker does not purport to be exercising judgment on behalf of any particular individual with those circumstances he's directly acquainted, government regulation ceases to function as legitimate regulation of professional practice with only incidental impact on speech. It becomes regulation of speaking or publishing as such, subject to the First Amendment's command that, as I put it, the five most beautiful languages in our Constitution, Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of speech. Can I, can I turn you to what, in the sure. few moments remaining, to what, at least to me, seems to be the, the weakest part of your case, which is the, um, uh, the false application claim. Right. That, that seems to have the, the least protection, or the, the First Amendment seems to be furthest removed from that. And address that if you could. Sure. I'll get to that real, real quickly. So I want to say before I move on, you can avoid all the constitutional stuff if you apply Weatherston. If you say Weatherston, and you know, the quote from that says, you're not to apply these statutes that literally to lead to absurd results. And by the way, under Minnesota statute- Except to the false representation, the false- I'll get to that. Right, right, right. I'll get to that. I mean, I'm just saying Weatherston doesn't, that seems to be, First Amendment, Weatherston, that all seems to be separate from this I, I don't think it is, because if the state doesn't have an interest in prohibiting uh, Mr. Marone from saying he's a professional engineer outside of practicing engineering, then how does the state have an interest in asking him whether he used the term professional engineer 
outside the practice of engineering. Well, it seems to me you'd have an interest to say, well, have you ever represented yourself as a professional engineer? Yes or no? If the answer is yes, explain. And then you could give your First Amendment explanation. But in this case, just simple dishonesty, if it is dishonesty. I don't think it is. It's compelled speech. So you're compelling. It's compelled speech, which is subject to the First Amendment free speech guarantee. You're compelling Mr. Morone to answer that question. They, you still, the state still has to have an interest in, in forcing him to answer that question. What's the state's interest in having him answer that question if it's not connected to the profession? Well, he was applying to have his licensure reinstated. So they do have an interest because he was asking for them to license him. I, I, I completely disagree with that. They do not have an interest in knowing whether he called himself a professional engineer if it wasn't connected but, to the practice but, but of engineering. don't they have an interest in exploring whether his representations to the public were, let's assume you're correct, let's assume we agree completely with all the rest of your argument that he's got a, that this statute should be applied only in the context of soliciting work or holding yourself out to the public so as not to mislead, et cetera, et cetera. Wouldn't the state have an interest in exploring whether he's crossed the line in his representations by asking the question, have you ever represented yourself as an engineer during the time that you weren't allowed to? I, I would say that I would go back to saying no because they don't have an interest, number one. And number two, if that's what the state's position is, then the state should make that clear in the question on the application. Mr. Marone testified in his declaration that when he read that question, he assumed it meant that he was representing him as, as a professional engineer when engaged in professional engineering. I hope the court understands Mr. Marone was not aware of the complaint against him by Mr. Dixon until after he had made that uh, applied for reinstatement. So he didn't, he didn't know this could possibly be an issue. And he testified in his declaration if he knew that, if, Di- if he had received Dixon's complaint, then he would have answered that question. Oh, I probably have to explain this to the board. I don't want to get in any more trouble. But when he answered the question, he looked at it, no, I haven't said I'm a professional engineer. I haven't been doing professional engineering services. I'm getting a flashing red light here. Yes, I think you are. If there's additional questions. (laughs) Thank you. Um, I believe that we've exhausted ourselves of both time and questions. Great. Um, So thank you both for your excellent argument, both in brief and in your oral advocacy today. Um, I've said it once before, I I don't always say this, but your clients should both be very happy with the representation that you've provided. So thank you both. The court appreciates it. By by the way, it's great to be back in court again. Is it nice to be live again? (laughs) (laughs) We think so too. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. And have a good afternoon.